hear the word of Christ. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the word of the Lord. It's a humbling moment when you realize that you are not something that you thought you were. Certainly that had to be true for this church in Sardis. Imagine showing up for church in Sardis at this very church on Sunday morning. Perhaps it's Easter morning even. And you show up ready to have a powerful worship experience. Ready to hear a positive, uplifting message of hope. And you even hear that a letter from Jesus arrived in the mail this week. And you're ready to go. Dear Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now perhaps the local news headlines ran something like this. Jesus eviscerates local church. <laughs> Jesus excoriates church in Sardis with brutal takedown peace. <laughs> but that's not what's actually going on here. Jesus actually loves them. And he loves them because he wants them to see the truth. He wants them to stop operating by pretense and remove the veneer and see what lies beneath the surface and see who they really are. And sometimes the truth hits hard. And Jesus tells them that they are not what they think they are. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And Francis Schaeffer said it best, most churches die long before they cease to exist. And so what happened to this church? How did they get into this situation where they are dead? Well, this letter is the most direct of all of these seven letters as you could probably already figure out. But it's also the most vague of these seven letters. Notice that it doesn't provide a lot of detail or context. It doesn't bring to light any specific issue within the church. It just tells them their condition. It doesn't bring up any of those things. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't talk about suffering or persecution. There's no mention of a Jezebel or Balaam or Nicolaitans. There's no mention of good works. You don't see any of that. Instead, you see nothing. And that's precisely the point. Jesus doesn't talk about any of those things because they aren't there. There's nothing. 
And Jesus is pointing out the fact that there's nothing going on that he actually values. Why? Because they're dead. And so what we're looking at with this church in Sardis is perhaps the first recorded church that had fallen into nominal Christianity. We're looking at a church that's a cautionary tale of what can happen when a church fits all too comfortably within its surrounding culture and being a Christian costs absolutely nothing. There's no hardship to overcome. There's no suffering to, pur- to purify them. They're just a comfy people going through the comfy Christian motions. And so they become a religion of formalities. They become just people that do the things that you do. And there's no sense of countercultural edge to their faith anymore, and they no longer are aware of the overarching universal purposes, mission, and agenda of God. And so nominal Christianity is whenever you adopt Christian ideas and you adopt Christian practices, but you don't adopt Christian purposes. And so nominalism is having a belief in God or having a Christian worldview, but there's no sense of urgency to bear witness. It's knowing how to use Christian vocabulary and Christian lingo, but not having a lifestyle that lives any of that out. It's assuming our children will grow up and be saved and converted by virtue of growing up in a Christian environment instead of actively engaging them with the gospel. Nominalism is using Christianity as a means by which I can become the best version of myself instead of being transformed by participating in the universal purposes of God. Nominalism begins every Saturday night with the conversation, sweetie, do you feel like going to church tomorrow? And you put all of that together. And what that does is it creates a church that lives as though it's already living in eternity. All things have been made new. There's nothing left to do. There's no pain or sadness or sorrow to enter into. Every tear has been wiped away. There's no powers of darkness or spiritual war going on around them. Everything is just fine and dandy. And that's a church that Jesus calls dead. So how does a church get to that place? What's the recipe for this kind of dead nominalism? Well, Jesus gives us two things. He brings two things to light that were going on in Sardis. Number one, as they were focused on their reputation instead of facing reality. He says in verse one, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This church had at one time a thriving body of believers, So much so that they gained a reputation for being a vibrant church. So maybe they had a a season of profound revival where people were coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, turning away from their idolatry and becoming Christians. Maybe there was a season in which the church gave so sacrificially to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow in the name of Christ that their reputation grew. But whatever it was, that was the end result is that their church grew in renown, grew in their reputation for their devotion to the things of God. But by the time they had received this letter, something had changed. They still had the reputation, but that reputation was all they had. Their reputation no longer matched reality. And so they were dead because they were no longer looking for God in the present. 
They were only focusing on what God had done in the past. So, for instance, have you ever spent time in a church that just talks about the good old days? Right? A church that they talk about those glory days, about the way that things used to be, how we need to get back to those days, because that's the kind of people that we are. And the people are always reminiscing about ways they can get back what they feel like they lost, trying to recreate some notion of what God did in the past. But the effect of that is that it really only communicates a deadness, does it not? Because you want to follow that up with the question, yeah, but what is he doing now? Do you have any sense of what God wants for you in the here, in the now, and in the present? They're so focused on what God did in the past that they don't think about what God might have for them in the future, and they assume that what was true all those years ago must still be true now. And they focus on their reputation. What might might that look like here if we became that type of church at Rockwell Press? Over the course of time, we began to be focused on our reputation, and this started to play out among us. It probably looked like this. It started off something like, yeah, a year ago, we raised $50,000 for our partnerships in South Asia. $50,000, we built churches, we dug water wells, we are investing in this church planting movement in the deep forest. We are a church that's about missions and the Great Commission. So we're going to say, yeah, wow, that's incredible. But then a little bit of time goes by. And that starts to become something like this. Yeah, three years ago, we actually raised, or wait, oh, actually it was, it was five years ago? Oh, you know, time flies. Either way, five years ago, we raised $50,000 for missions. We're a great commission kind of church. And then a little bit of time goes by and we say, oh yeah, 10 years ago, we raised a lot of money for missions. We are all about the great commission here at Rockwall Press. It's like, really? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like you actually have no clue what God wants for you now, here in the present. No sense of where he's taking you. And now, don't get me wrong, any church needs to celebrate what God has done and tell their story. Absolutely. And we want to do that well here at our church. It's a part of bearing witness. But a church can easily move into a place of nominalism and deadness because what God has done in the past no longer compels them to ask God to do more in the future. They stop asking God for more. What God has done in the past stops shaping their imagination for where he might want to take them. It stops shaping their excitement and creating a hunger for seeking more of what God might have for them. So there's no sense of saying, look at all that God did in the past. What might he have for us next? There's no hunger and thirst for the things of God. And so a dead church in the end is essentially one that no longer asks God to do anything. It's a church that no longer asks God to move. A church that no longer asks God to have more of him and they're dead Because having more of him doesn't ignite the passions and desires of the heart. And so, a dead church is one that focuses on their past and is unwilling to see God in the present. But secondly, in Sardis, they operated by appearances instead of authenticity. 
And we have to dig a little bit deeper to see this, but if you just think about Jesus' earthly ministry for a second, who was it that received his harshest criticism? Well, it was the Pharisees. They were the ones that operated by appearances. They did things to be noticed by others. They did things to receive the applause, the praise, and the affirmation of others. And they were all show because their underlying motivating concern was how they appeared in the eyes of others. And it wasn't out of an authentic desire to please and honor God, which is why when Jesus teaches, he always tells everyone, if you want to know God, then do the complete opposite of what you see the Pharisees doing. I mean, how would you like to be that guy? This is the negative example in Jesus' sermons. Everybody look at Jeff. Don't do what Jeff does if you want to know God. And that's exactly what he does with the Pharisees. He tells them the same thing that he tells Sardis. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. Things are pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotting. And so their concern was about their reputation before men instead of their reputation before God, which is why they have a preoccupation with keeping up appearances. And that should give us a clue as we consider this church in Sardis and why they received Jesus' harshest criticism in these letters. Because they are focusing on appearances. Jesus says in verse 2, he says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So it's, the issue is not that this church in Sardis isn't doing anything. It's that their, their works are hollow and empty. They're a church that's filled with all sorts of activity, but none of those activities actually stir their heart and affections towards God. And the reason they got to this place is because they had compromised their values. If you look at verse 4, Jesus says that there are still some that haven't yet soiled or stained their garments. So he's implying that the rest of the church is in this condition because they have stained their garments. And James uses this language whenever he talks about the purity of religious devotion and what that actually looks like. And part of it is that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. And so this is a very biblical idea that Jesus is bringing to light for this church in Sardis. And he's bringing to light that their values are stained because their values have been shaped by the values of the world. And so it's a powerful image thinking about these garments. Because here this church is, every Sunday they get dressed up for church. And yet all they do is only arrive covered in the values of the world around them. And so they don't come looking for an opportunity to sing their hearts out to God. They don't come looking to unload their burdens in confession and receive the forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. They don't come looking to be strengthened in their faith at the Lord's table. There's no sense of approaching God with humility and a humble reverence in the presence of the living God. Instead, they come looking for something else. They come looking for entertainment. Maybe they just love the music and they don't actually come looking to experience the presence of God. They value materialism, and so they love being a part of a church that has a beautifully adorned building, yet they don't have any value for a life that is adorned with the beauty of good works and humble service. And so operating by appearances easily gives the impression of devotion. But on the inside, it lacks authenticity. 
because there's no real genuine passion and love for God. And Jesus is really just bringing up an old problem. It's as old as the hills, so to say. Because you see this all throughout the Old Testament when the prophets address this issue time and time and time again with Israel. Isaiah says that these people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. And Amos says that, God says, I despise your festivals. Your gatherings are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs. And in each of the moments that God deals with this appearance-driven people that don't actually desire him, he always follows that up with the same thing, and he says, I am going to come to you, and I am going to remove all of it from you. I'm going to come and take away all of those things. Why? Because I'm going to expose the nominalism within my people. I'm going to expose that their devotion was all pretense, and there wasn't really ever a desire for me. And so what that tells us, if we want to have any sense of where nominalism exists, all you have to do is introduce a little bit of suffering, and you'll see it clear as day. And this is why Jesus warns them the way he does in verse 3. If you don't wake up, I am going to come like a thief. I'm going to take away all those appearances, all those things you glory in, and I'm going to get you down to your baseline. I'm going to purify my church. And for the people that actually want me, then taking away those things will be fine because they will still have me. But for those that glory in those things, when I take them away, they will not have me at all because they never wanted me in the first place. Jesus will purify his people. So how can we apply this passage to us? One of the things I've heard from many of you is that these letters to these churches in Revelation, it's amazing how prevalent these issues are even to our day. And certainly this letter is no different. So much of it rings true for our time and in our place because nominal Christianity is a reality on so many different levels. And we exist in a time in which so much of it is actually being exposed right in front of us. If we take a step back for a second, just take a wide-angle view of the world, my personal belief is that we exist at a rapidly changing, pivotal moment, tide-turning moment in history. Something is going on. Something is happening. And that's about all I can tell you. <laughs> Let's pray. I'm just kidding. But I think we know it and we feel it, do we not? Let's take that wide-angle view for a second. Right now, over 80% of Americans, which is a record high, are saying that they are simply unhappy. That's blown away the previous record by like 20%. 80% of Americans are saying that they are unhappy. And so if there's anything that's receiving bipartisan agreement right now, it's that we are all unhappy, right? And then on top of that, you have a country that's divided on every possible issue under the sun. And we are seeing landmark Supreme Court decisions handed down on gender and sexuality. We've reached a tipping point on conversations about race, cultural unrest, 
anti-authoritarian sentiment. We're facing economic uncertainty, market instability that's only having increasingly significant global repercussions, and all of that's happening inside an election year, and all of that is happening inside a global pandemic. Normal left in March, and we have to recognize that. Whatever we are at the end of all of this is not going to be the same as it was before. Take the global pandemic for a second. Because we have to recognize that the soil is shifting beneath our feet. And we are now at a place where, you know, what we hoped for in March is just no longer in the cards. What we hoped would only last for a few weeks. Well, that's off the table now. COVID-19 is a part of life. COVID-19 is here to stay, at least for the time being. There's no avenue in which we can go to where we can pretend like it doesn't exist. It's here, it's a part of life, and it seems to be here for the long haul. And everything is causing, it's causing everything to have to think about ways to do things differently and what it means in every avenue of life, even the church. And the effect on the church has been utterly significant. And that's an understatement. Because even right now, even this week, churches have said that they will no longer be reopening for the remainder of the year. And more churches are going to follow suit. The rest of 2020, they're not going to meet. And they're assuming that it's going to be better in 2021. And I'm not looking to cast judgment on any sense, or in, in any sense, cast judgment on our brothers and sisters. That would be foolish and ridiculous. But we do have to wrestle with the fact that as the church is making these decisions, it's getting us down to a sense of what is necessary and what is essential. And I think that in light of everything that's going on, we have to seriously wrestle with the question of whether or not we will ever, the church will ever get her people back. Because right now, the reality is that she cannot keep her people now. Barna just recently released a study. They've been doing this series of the state of the church in 2020. And they just released a, a study that said that now, up to this point, as a result of the pandemic, one-third of practicing churchgoers no longer participates in either in-person or online worship services. One-third of the church is gone in four months no longer participating in worship of any kind. Gone, just like that. Perhaps God is exposing our nominalism right in front of us. Maybe he's ex exposing the nominalism that lurks in our hearts and he is purifying his church. And if we don't keep an ear to the ground, we're going to miss it. And I think if we just think, oh, we just want to get back to normal, I don't think that that's where we're going. There's nothing in the cards that says it's just going to be over and done with. It's not the way the world works. And yet we serve a sovereign God, do we not? We serve a God that actually sends pandemics. Look at in 2 Chronicles, he doesn't tell Solomon, hey, if a pandemic ever happens, he says if and when, or he doesn't say if, he says when I send drought, when I send pestilence and disease. The if comes whenever, how, based on how his people respond. He says, if my people humble themselves, I will hear them. 
my eyes and my heart will dwell with them. So I think here we are, right? And at some point, the church is going to have to stop thinking politically, economically, and socially, and start to think theologically about everything that's going on. We need to start, you know, giving up on campaign promises and think about the promises that God gives us in his scriptures, right? I mean, we have to get to a point where we start asking deeper questions. What is God doing in all of this? What does God require of us? What is God asking for us to do? But in order to find those answers, it requires that a church is willing to reject any notion of rote, ritualistic, dead nominalism. It requires a church that hungers for more. Capital M, capital O, capital R, capital E, more. You have to be unsettled by what we've experienced before and say, what do you have in store for us next? And let us not pretend as though God is as confused as we are. We have to desire more. So how does that actually happen? How does a church get rescued from nominalism? Well, look at what Jesus offers this church. In verse 1, he says he's the one that has the, spirit, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And the seven spirits is how he introduces himself. It's me, Jesus the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so the seven spirits is just Revelation's way of talking about the, the one Holy Spirit. And we know from previously that these seven stars are these spiritual bodies, these angels over the churches. And then he tells the church to remember what they were given, to keep it, to strengthen what remains. And then at the end, he says, are you listening to what the Spirit says to the churches? Listen to the Spirit. And I am the one who holds the Spirit. So what's he doing? He's reminding them of the fact that Jesus did not create a materialistic, appearance-driven kind of people. He created a spiritual people engaged in spiritual realities. And he invites them to wake up and remember what they were given. They were given the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that raised them from their spiritual deadness. It was, they were born of the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And he tells them to hold fast to that, to keep it, and strengthen what remains, and start living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, and be transformed in the Spirit. He wants them to wake up and invite God's presence back into their church, and invite God's presence back into their marriages, their families, their communities, their cities, and to be a people that are spirit-filled and spirit-sent and 100% devoted to the mission of God in their time and in their place. He wants them to be a people that desire more. And that invitation still stands 2,000 years later. During a season in which there is so much unknown and in a season in which there are so many things that are trying to lull the church to sleep. We have to be careful not to get stuck in a rhythm and a pattern where we settle for less instead of hungering for that more that's available to us. And so my desire is that we would not put the mission of God on hold during this season and just wait for everything to go back to normal. But instead, we would consider 
How is it that we can bring the mission of God to bear in this new time, this new place, and these new circumstances? Because it's God who placed them upon us. And it's God who placed us in them. And we can go to him and begin to ask those deeper questions. And so here's what we're going to do. In a few weeks, we're going to start a sermon series on prayer. And we're going to unite our church together in prayer. We're going to pray corporately. We're going to pray in our community groups. And we're going to seek the face of God in the midst of everything that's going on. And we're going to ask God to fill us, to shape us, to use us, and to send us. And sometimes when we think about that in the midst of all the unknown, we don't really know what to even pray for or where to begin which is why we're going to use the scriptures to shape our imaginations in prayer. Use the scriptures to shape our imaginations for who and what we are called to be and begin to pray for those very things with which God is willing to give, which is boldness and courage and opportunities to go out, to bear witness and recognize that when you ask that of God, he is willing to make your path straight, to make the high places low, and to raise the low places so that you have good works prepared beforehand to walk in instead of waiting around. Because I think with everything going on, we can at least stop and recognize this, or at least I have, is that what this has done is it's given us an opportunity to have a future that's far more shaped by prayer than it probably would have been otherwise. We just would have gone on done our things, did what we always did. Instead, we have that opportunity to wake up and be rescued perhaps from the nominalism that exists within us and ask God for how he could wake us up to what he is doing and how he might use us. And in addition to that, we're going to lay out some plans for this fall and the coming weeks about what life's going to look like here at RPC. And one of those things is that we are going to provide resources to our parents so that we can be a church that owns the faith of our children and we can reject nominalism in our parenting. And we're going to offer resources for husbands and wives to be able to come together for a short amount of time each and every week to learn, to lay the scriptures over their lives and to pray together, to pray into these very things and reject nominalism in our marriages. And we're developing a plan right now with our community group leaders to go into the surrounding blocks and cross the street by first laying a foundation of prayer and asking God to stir our hearts and our affections and open up opportunities for what? For us to find the suffering in our community. And if we go with that kind of prayer, we can be certain that we will find it. And to pray for the boldness to minister and to bear witness to it. In the name of Christ, our Lord. And what will the result of all of that be? I have no idea. I guess we'll see when we get there. But I do know that I want us to be willing to put ourselves in a position where the Spirit promises to work and ask for more. Let's pray.